This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal Country. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, when it comes to treating hair loss, what, if anything, actually works? Is there a gene test that could get men off the hook or off the knife when a biopsy shows prostate cancer? A simple, cheap way to enable thousands more people to register as a bone marrow donor with potentially enormous benefits to people whose origins make them difficult to match. And follow up to last week's show where we again covered the controversy over the TGA's decision to allow the authorised prescribing of psychedelics for treatment-resistant depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. We also want to follow up on our story on vaping and how most vaping products contain nicotine illegally. But Norman, you go first on psychedelics. Well, last week we referred and still refer you to a superb background briefing on RN, not last Sunday, but the Sunday before last on ABC Listen, and critiqued a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine that the Therapeutic Goods Administration appears to have relied upon for its decision. You can get that on the Health Report podcast from last week. We also quoted the many thousands of dollars that one medical organisation may be planning to charge for the treatment. But I did make an error, suggesting that the charity heavily promoting psychedelics, Mind Medicine Australia, is a shareholder in that business, when I should have made clear it's a personal equity holding by MMA's chair, Peter Hunt. Apologies to MMA and Peter Hunt. And Tegan, speaking of the TGA, they released their findings from a consultation on vaping, which we also covered the issue of vaping last week. What did the TGA say? Yeah, well, the context here is that they're considering reforms as to how nicotine vaping products are regulated. And the TGA had a public consultation, which has closed now on Friday. They released a summary of what the main submissions were. The TGA says it's providing advice to the government on possible options for reform. They haven't actually said what their advice is, but they do indicate what their preferred options are. And there's sort of four potential reforms. One is changes to border controls. The TGA wants to strengthen border controls by requiring importers to obtain an import permit and they want to close off the personal importation scheme. One of the other main themes is basically checking a product against a product standard before it goes to market. And the TGA's preferred option there is to require the TGA's assessment of nicotine vaping products against this product standard so before it kind of goes out into market. Of course, the issue is that there's lots of products that contain nicotine and don't say they do. Exactly, which was the thrust of the conversation we had with um, our expert last week. And then uh, quality standards. So they want to, uh, it's, it's a sort of jargony, but they basically want to introduce warning statements, um, have packaging that makes them look more like pharmaceuticals and uh, lower the amount of allowable nicotine in these products and restrict the amount of flavours, basically making them less appealing to people who aren't sort of having them for therapeutic reasons. And on that, they want it to be um, clarified that all vaping products containing nicotine are therapeutic goods, therefore would be uh, administered by the Therapeutic Goods Administration. And therapeutic goods are things that are like medicines or medical products as opposed to, say, food or cosmetics. And in this case, require a prescription. You've got to go to the chemist for it. 
Exactly. So again, you can listen back to last week's health report. It's a bonanza of information on both of these topics. uh, And we'll also keep an eye on this one going forward. But Norman, you and our producer Shelby Trainer have been investigating what could be a simple solution to saving many lives. Yes, this is about the difficult challenge of matching donors to recipients for bone marrow transplants. And if you think this is a story that doesn't apply to you, well, around 1 in 19 people will develop a blood cancer during their lives and a growing proportion of them will need a bone marrow transplant. And while some organ donations don't need a perfect match, the kidneys are an example, bone marrow transplants do pretty much as close as you can get it because what you're doing is replacing someone's entire immune system. So you don't want rejection as the rejection process itself can be fatal. Finding a match can be literally one in a million shot or one in many millions shot, which in turn means we need huge numbers of us to be on the bone marrow donor registry And we could be, if a process used widely overseas, cheek swabs by post were to be used here. Shelby Trainer spoke to Murray Fulton and his wife Claudia. Murray has a rare form of blood cancer. And a couple of months ago, he found out he'd need a bone marrow transplant. But finding a match has been tough, to say the least. I did expect it to go faster because I was told that actually finding a donor shouldn't be an issue. But my type is irregular. And so we've have not been able to find a donor match to date. But having said that, I'm quite positive. My amazing wife, Claudia, has been doing donor drives to increase the chances of finding someone. When did you start the search overseas? About a month ago. I mean, this is all brand new to us. So as we educated ourselves more, it became clear that we weren't going to achieve too much in Australia with the limited testing capabilities. Once we understood that 83% of donor matches come from overseas going far and wide and leveraging our worldwide networks made full sense. When we say contacts overseas, I think it's just been amazing that it's friends and family and friends and family of those connections. There are people who are offering to run swabbing drives in their local community that we've never met, that that we don't know, but they're saying, oh, I would love to help out, so let's run a swab drive. And because the swabbing is so easy overseas, it makes turning offering help into action much simpler. What's it like knowing that these processes exist and are very well run overseas and we just basically don't even have it in Australia? Oh, I mean, I could only describe it as incredibly frustrating now that we're in it and we get a full sense of the frustration that Strength to Give have felt for years. We want every eligible 18 to 35-year-old in Australia to swab and get themselves onto the registry. What would you like to say to the government, the health minister, about the situation? My question is, why not so far? It is scalable, it is cost-effective, it is encouraging, it is simple. I think they are now realising that and they need to change things very quickly. It sounds like the federal health minister and the state ministers are having the right conversations and I just look forward to the governments and the different agencies and the blood services coming together because I think it will make a big difference to others in similar situations to me. Murray and Claudia Fulton talking to Shelby Trainer. So how do potential donors currently get onto the registry and what difference might cheek swabs make? Lisa Smith is Chief Executive of the Australian Bone Marrow Donor Registry, which runs the Strength to Give campaign. Welcome to the Health Report, Lisa. Thank you, Norman. The current system sounds incredibly inefficient. Um, We have been trying for many years to get approval from health departments 
to use the funds that we hold on their behalf to implement cheek swab recruitment in Australia. The current method is that you need to be firstly a blood donor and you need to then ask the next time you're making a blood donation to join the registry. So, so that's a had, tiny proportion of the population that's even asked in the first place. Yeah, so, so the trends in our donor numbers have been going the wrong way for the best part of a decade. On average, we see around 5,200 new donors every year joining, but we lose around 8,000 donors just because once you reach the age of 60, you're retired from the registry. So, so it is not efficient at all. How does it work with cheek swabs? I mean, do you post people a cheek swab? I mean, or do you, in a campaign, do you just send it out to the general community and wait till they come back a bit like the poo test or what? It is a very simple process and I'm very pleased to say that we have launched that process today. So you literally go to our Strength to Give website, you fill in the enrolment um, form, which is on the site, and then we will send you a cheek swab in the post. You swab your cheeks and you put the swabs in the reply paid envelope and pop it back in the mail. So you haven't waited on government funding here, you've just gone out alone on this? Well, we were very encouraged by the Minister's words back in uh, several weeks ago when he acknowledged that cheek swabs are an effective and very economical way of bringing additional donors to the registry and he vowed to cut through the bureaucratic red tape and to do everything he can to clear the way for the introduction of swabs. And so um, health ministers shortly after that committed half a million dollars in funding for us to uh, introduce cheek swabs and have made a commitment to further funding to be announced at the end of April. So we've been very encouraged by that and feel that now is the right time because we understand better than anybody else in Australia the desperation of patients such as Murray when it comes to finding that donor. And so, you know, we have acted as quickly as we can. Will we ever be non-reliant on overseas donor registries? No, that's a statistical impossibility. Um, we don't see that in any country um, because we just don't have the, the diversity or the numbers. Even if every single Australian was on the registry, um, we still would be reliant on overseas donors for a proportion of our patients. However, that should not be sitting over 80%. We should be getting it back to where we used to be, which was much closer to a 50-50 um, split. And, of course, then we can donate to other parts of the world as well because we've got a very diverse population with a different genetic background. Absolutely. And we have the moral imperative, particularly because we have been so reliant for so long on overseas donors. There is that real ethical obligation that every First Nation country such as Australia has to contribute to the overseas donor pool. And so it's, it's really imperative, particularly in our region, because there are so few donor registries within the Asia-Pacific region for us to call upon. And so for us to be able to recruit, particularly from those communities, is really important. So you tissue type your, the donor on the uh, cheek swab. And if you're then called upon to give a donation, it's not like giving a, a kidney. You're essentially taking some bone marrow from you with a local anaesthetic and then passing it on to the person who needs it. Well, in fact, it's even simpler than that. So after giving you a very thorough uh, workup, medical inspection, to make sure that you are fit and well to donate, 90% uh, of the time you will have a short course of injections, so four days, which you can administer to yourself, um, and that's going to stimulate your bone marrow to make lots and lots of blood stem cells. That will spill out into your bloodstream, 
and then you effectively spend four hours sitting in a chair while your blood is filtered and those cells are removed, your blood is returned to you, and those, that, those filtered cells just go to the patient. So Strength to Give, do you want to give us the website again? strengthtogive.org.au And we'll have that on our website too. Lisa, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Lisa Smith, great to hear that it's moving ahead. And what I forgot to get to tell you was that, in fact, they did a pilot which showed a huge uplift in people offering to be on the registry when you sent out these cheek swabs. Lisa's Chief Executive of the Australian Bone Marrow Donor Registry. And you're listening to The Health Report on RN. Baldness isn't uncommon, and if ads on daytime television and sidebars on websites are anything to go by, neither is a fervent desire for a cure. We are a society that loves hair. We've built whole industries around it. So how does it feel when your hair disappears? And how much hope can or should you have that it will come back? I've been chatting about this to Brisbane woman Lucy, who has hair loss due to an autoimmune condition. So my name is Lucy, I'm 30 years old and I have alopecia universalis. So that means I don't have any hair on my head or my face, so no eyebrows or eyelashes uh, or the rest of my body. It must have been an emotional journey to come to this spot. Yeah, it took a long time for me to kind of become okay with this new me and, you know, the way that I looked now. And for a little while, I sort of thought about wearing wigs and I was particularly sad about my eyebrows being missing because I had just the best eyebrows. (laughs) They were bushy and gorgeous and I really loved them. Yeah, for a little while, I tried things like drawing on my brows or like I borrowed a couple of friends' wigs and sort of tried those out. And it just felt to me like I was trying to cover up or that I was implying that there was something wrong with how I naturally looked if I did that. So I just sort of got used to the idea of going out into the world and being a little egg basically with no (laughs) hair. And I think the more that I became okay with it, the more fine everybody else around me was with it. On treatments, is that something that you've been offered or have sought and then decided not to go ahead with? Certainly initially I do a lot of reading about the condition and uh, my understanding is that it's pretty low likelihood of regrowth once you progress to universalis, which is what I have. I know that there are certain treatments that are available, but it's just never really been something that I'm super interested in, partly just because of the side effects that were associated with a lot of those treatments. And also I was just quite wary of kind of sham treatments and things that have very little chances of success. And I think I was quite resistant to, yeah, the idea of people playing on vulnerabilities and insecurities. And so I have had people, when I've mentioned it to a GP or to a new doctor that I might be seeing, they always ask about it because I'm pretty bald. I'm (laughs) totally bald. And I always just say from the outset, I'm really happy with where I'm at and I'm not interested in any treatments. Yes, certainly there's pressure, I think, or an assumption that I would want all of my hair back or that I would be willing to try anything to get it back. And for me, I'm kind of fine how I am. So apart from the aesthetic side of things, are there any health downsides to your hair loss? There is. So uh, because I don't have any body hair, um, I actually get really cold really easily and I get really hot really easily. I'm often wearing a beanie in sort of like 20 degree weather because my poor little chilly egg is um, struggling. I also have no nose hairs. So if I get 
a slight sniffle. It's a little bit drippy and gross. And I have had a lot of troubles without eyelashes. Just stuff gets in your eyes, you know? You don't think about it until you're missing them that your eyelashes and your eyebrows and your nose hairs are actually helpful to you. (laughs) I've always been a crier, but I think the lashes that might ordinarily keep a little wellage at bay are no longer (laughs) there. And so it's just if I'm crying or if I'm slightly sniffly, everybody knows about it. So it's not that there's no health problems, but for you weighing the potential effectiveness of a treatment and the side effects that might come along with it against some runny noseness and maybe some weird looks, that that feels like an okay balance for you. I think so. And I think for me, there's also a factor of I know right now that I'll probably be bald forever and I've come to terms with that and I've accepted it. And I think if I were to trial a treatment, I feel like I might get into a really anxious space wondering whether this thing's going to work and wondering whether continually doing that risk assessment or kind of like weighing up the pros and cons of whatever side effects I might be experiencing. And I think for me, I'm just, I would rather be happy with where I am. And if the universe wants to send me some hair, cool, great. But I'm not going to spend my emotional energy chasing it, I think. But while Lucy has made her peace with her hair loss, many people are desperate for a cure. Rodney Sinclair is Professor of Dermatology at the University of Melbourne, and he's just returned from a major conference on this topic in the US. Welcome, Rodney. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we just heard Lucy talking about sham treatments preying on vulnerable people. What do we know actually works? Well, the whole treatment algorithm for alopecia has changed profoundly in the last three to four years. So we went pretty much 40 years without a single new treatment. And then in the past two or three years, we've probably got about 40 new emerging treatments. And this often happens in medicine, that once people make the fundamental breakthrough in the science and the molecular biology, then targeted treatments develop. And then once someone proves a targeted treatment works, then all the other pharmaceutical companies try and copy it, develop modifications on it. And so the field moves very, very quickly. And we saw this at the turn of the century with psoriasis. So we got the very first biologic treatments for psoriasis. And within a few years, we had about 20 new treatments. And as a consequence of that, all the psoriasis wards and hospitals had to close because the patients were now being managed with, as outpatients with uh, injectable treatments. And I suspect we've seen similar changes in other diseases with rheumatoid arthritis and perhaps even inflammatory bowel disease. And I think we're on the cusp of seeing that emergence of a new paradigm shift in the treatment of alopecia uh, on, our, on our doorstep. It's really exciting to hear, but it does sound like it's a quite a recent shift. How, as it stands at the moment, how effective are the treatments that are effective and what kind of side effects or downsides do they come along with? So the historical treatment for alopecia was prednisolone. Prednisolone worked in about 80% of patients But many people had to continue taking it. And then they started to accumulate all the side effects associated with prolonged prednisolone use. It's a steroid. Yeah, it's a steroid. And so so that steroid treatment gave the treatments a bad name because many people were either intolerant of the side effects or made a decision that the side effects were worse than the disease itself. And I think that's now changed with these new treatments. They belong to a, a family of medications called Janus kinase inhibitors. And they were actually invented at the Walter and Eliza Hall here in Melbourne. So there's a, a fellow called Andrew Wilkes who basically set the whole ball in motion. And at a, at a recent talk that he gave at one of the conferences we ran in Melbourne, he was saying that the globally, 
there's over $20 billion in annual sales in JAK inhibitors, or these Janus kinase inhibitors for the treatment of a whole range of diseases, of which alopecia areata is probably the newest one added to the list. And, and what we've just seen in the last few months is the first of these medications has now got FDA approval in the United States. And so that's now being widely prescribed throughout America. It's got approval in Europe through what's called the EMA, which is their equivalent, approval in Japan, and it's now under consideration by the TGA. And so when you think about all these regulatory bodies around the world, the FDA is probably the highest bar that you've got to get over, and, uh, and this medication is now an FDA-approved treatment for alopecia. If people stop taking it, their hair doesn't continue growing, though. Is that right? That's not entirely true. And so we've been fortunate enough to have patients enrolled in these in clinical trials using these medications for the past probably six years now at our centre. We've had a number of patients where we've been able to stop the treatments and they've managed to continue to keep their hair. But there are also patients who, when you stop the treatment, it relapses. And a little bit of that depends on how long they've had the disease before they have the treatment. The patients like Lucy who might have had the disease for for 10 or 15 years, they're more likely to require ongoing treatment. However, patients who are newly diagnosed tend to have a better prognosis and many of them can stop the treatments without problem. But ongoing treatment's not necessarily a problem because in diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, for which some of these drugs were originally designed, it was always the intention that people would take it lifelong. And so the safety profile for these medications when they were being developed was designed for people to take it lifelong. In alopecia, I think we're going to be fortunate that many patients will be able to stop the treatment after a period of time. Briefly, how, how much does it cost if you're having this treatment for life and are there um, side effects that accumulate? There doesn't appear to be side effects that accumulate. Uh, it tends to be very well tolerated. With the one medication that's been approved by the FDA in the United States, that's one called baricitinib. Um, the main side effect that we tend to see is a little bit of mild acne that we can manage with some topical antibiotic ointment. We sometimes see a mild elevation in their cholesterol, but it's not enough to require treatment. So quite and mild. And on the whole, it's a really well-tolerated treatment. Ronnie, we do have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Ronnie Sinclair is Professor of Dermatology at the University of Melbourne and Director of Epworth Dermatology. Since we've mentioned the concept of lifetime risk already on the show, let's, let me give you another statistic. The lifetime risk of a man getting prostate cancer is around 12%. In other words, more than 1 in 10 men. But that's not 1 in 10 men at random. Some are at increased risk. And then not every prostate cancer is aggressive enough to kill you. There are ways of helping to detect the nastiness of your tumour, but a relatively new technology that might help is called your polygenic risk score, which looks at genetic patterns. A recent study from Vanderbilt University in Nashville aimed to see whether a polygenic risk score could assist men and their doctors decide whether their prostate cancer is truly aggressive and therefore needs more aggressive treatment. Doctors Jonathan Mosley and Kerry Schaefer were both authors on the study. Thank you for having us on today. The main risk factors for prostate cancer are advancing age and also family history. There's a variety of genetic features that can increase the lifetime risk of prostate cancer. So what patterns might you notice in your family then? Because it's not just prostate cancer. That's true. So there's unique genetic sequencing, in particular genes such as BRCA1, BRCA2, a syndrome like Lynch syndrome, or another gene called Hox B13. And so if you have a family history that has 
breast and ovarian cancer and prostate cancer and high frequency, it's worth considering that you may have an inherited gene that could increase your lifetime risk for prostate cancer. And Jonathan, what is the polygenic risk score before we get onto this specific study in prostate cancer? What polygenic risk scores do is aggregate the measurable genetic risk variants that an individual carries. So there are numerous genetic variants that have been identified that modestly increase risks in an individual. And so the risk score is really measuring an individual's cumulative burden of these risk variants. So in other words, in addition to the variants that Kerry just mentioned, there are sort of minor changes in the genome, in your genome that might indicate your increased risk, but you've got to combine them because they add on to each other or multiply. That's exactly correct. And then what Kerry's often referred to are relatively rare variants. And when we think of polygenic risk score, we're really thinking of common variants. So variants that might be in 10, 20, 30, 40% of the population. Kerry, one of the challenges in prostate cancer is diagnosing men who actually have a variant of prostate cancer that they need to be worried about. In other words, they need treatment early because there's an overtreatment of screen-detected prostate cancer. So I think what you were trying to do here in this polygenic risk score study was to see if you could identify men at risk of aggressive prostate cancer. Absolutely. There's been a big shift in prostate cancer screening to really make efforts to identify prostate cancer that has lethal potential and warrants treatment. So one of the tests done now, which wasn't done before to try and help is MRIs of the prostate. But what you were doing in this study was looking at your genetic risk as defined by Jonathan. What did you do and what did you find? What we did was we looked at a collection of patients that are in the BioView databank at Vanderbilt. And we looked at a clinical tool called the Prostate Cancer Biopsy Collaborative Risk Calculator. So very long, but that is essentially a clinical tool that's used that combines a lot of clinical factors, family history, PSA, prior biopsy, age, and race, and looks at the risk with all of those data of diagnosing a high-risk cancer. And then we also brought in the polygenic risk score to see if that would improve on the ability to detect a high-risk cancer or any cancer. And you found that it didn't make a lot of difference? We did find that there was increased ability to detect any cancer, but it really did not improve on the ability to detect a high-risk cancer. So what's going on here, Jonathan? Because there are many genes involved in prostate cancer. Were we just looking at the wrong genes or what? So this risk score was developed by looking at individuals with and without prostate cancer. As Kerry alluded to, it did improve prediction sum for finding any cancer. But the clinical question that you want to ask is, can you identify the individuals who have high-risk cancer? And the score really wasn't optimized for that. So I think the big question is, is it possible to make this score so that it really discriminates between high-risk cancers and low-risk cancers? So does this mean perhaps that the chances of a prostate cancer becoming aggressive are not genetically determined? No, there are definitely some genetic risks for higher grade and more aggressive cancers, but that data is all evolving right now. So for men and their families, they really want their urologist to do the existing risk score because that's pretty good at determining what action might need to be taken next. Yeah, there are a lot of tools right now that do take into account genetic risks. From this polygenic risk score and PSA interpretation, it's not ready for widespread implementation. 
And so I would just caution the use of polygenic risk scores in their present state on a widespread method. I just finally, Jonathan Mosley, is there any clinical condition where doing a polygenic risk score is worth doing? You know, there's a, a lot of enthusiasm for polygenic risk scores, partly driven by a belief that if something's genetic, it must be better than other clinical measures. And so it's really essential to test every genetic instrument the way we would with any other clinical predictor and really make sure that we are doing things of benefit to patients. I would absolutely encourage it in the setting of research because that's really how we can enhance knowledge out there about outcomes and enhance the biodata that we have. And of course, that's not just in prostate cancer, it's in heart disease, breast cancer and other areas. Look, thank you very much to you both. That's been illuminating. Absolutely. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Drs. Jonathan Mosley and Kerry Schaefer from Vanderbilt University in Nashville. And that's it from the Health Report this week. We'll catch you next week. We certainly will. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.